Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 31st of January. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the Dáil heard statements on services for people seeking protection in Ireland. We're at a real crisis point in public and political rhetoric around refugees and asylum seekers in Ireland, and we need to take it very, very seriously because it's only a matter of time before people will get hurt. The reality for hundreds who have sought refuge here is that there's little for them in the way of services. Completely lost, unfortunately, in this debate is the 600 vulnerable men seeking protection in Ireland who have been sleeping rough in sub-zero temperatures with no protection. This is uh, the Social Democrats leader Holly Kearns who claims the government's approach uh, to immigration is a shambles and that nobody in the country understands what the plan is. And then we see the Minister for Justice response to this is to add two countries, Algeria and Botswana, to the safe country list. Meaning all asylum seekers from these countries will be fast-tracked through the process in a couple of weeks. Ministers, I'm wondering... Who is Algeria safe for? Because according to the Department of Foreign Affairs, it clearly isn't safe for Irish citizens. Algeria, she said, is not considered to be a safe place for Irish people to travel to, according to the Department of Foreign Affairs. The website, the Foreign Affairs website, warns against non-essential travel due to the risk of terrorist attacks in certain areas there. And Algeria isn't safe for LGBT people either. Homosexuality is illegal there and it is subject to three years imprisonment. Holly Kearns, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Perhaps you'd take up on that last point that Holly Kearns made in the Dáil yesterday and the question that she posed, who is Algeria safe for if it's not deemed to be safe for Irish people? Firstly, it's maybe just to explain to people that where we allocate a country as safe or we designate a country as safe, there's a very clear process that we have to go through. It's not simply a desktop study that my own officials do. We look at the country itself. We look at the laws that are there. We look at how they're applied. We engage with international partners, with other organisations. And if for the most part, and I have to say this, it's for the most part, it's not to exclude anybody because you will always have people from these countries that do need protection. But if for the most part people are not uh, treated inhumanely or in a degrading way, if they're not in war or uh, faced with war or persecution or torture, then we can deem these countries that safe. It does not stop a person from coming here and seeking protection. It just means that their process or their application will be processed much more quickly. So if you are coming from Algeria or Botswana, and you do actually 
need protection, it's actually a positive for you because your application will be turned around much more quickly. But what we have seen from the previous eight countries that have been deemed safe, that have had this accelerated procedure, 80% of people have actually not been successful. So 80% of applicants coming from, for example, Georgia, South Africa, um, Albania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, there's eight countries, 80% of those have not been in need of protection, but 20% have. So we will absolutely provide protection for those who need it. But the whole point here, and to, to Deputy Kern's point and other people's point, you know, we have people here at the moment where we cannot accommodate them. We have a system that has, in a very short space of time, seen a massive rise and increase in seeking people seeking protection. I want to make sure that the systems that I operate through my department, that it is there for the people who need it, that it's there for people who are genuinely fleeing persecution, be it because they are LGBT and they are not protected in their own country, be it because they're fleeing war. And if you have other people mm. coming into the system who are using it for economic means and, and nobody blames a person for wanting to go to a different country to improve their life. We have all seen how Irish people have done it over the years, but the international protection system is there for people yeah. fleeing war and persecution. And that so is so all if I you were Palestinian or not. Syrian and you had sought asylum in Algeria and then left because of the conditions there, you could quite possibly get uh, asylum here because in Algeria they dumped 16, 60, 60 people I- into the desert. This isn't a, a very people-friendly place at all. Um, there's questions uh, from Amnesty International about the right to a fair trial in this country. They're prosecuting peaceful activists and journalists. They closed down association. Prisoners are tortured and there's other ill-treatment meted out to them, according to Amnesty, by prison officers who act with impunity. They closed down churches. Um, they postponed the visit of the Special Rapporteur of the Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and of Association for the eighth time last year. There's a crackdown on freedom of expression and peaceful uh, assembly. Uh, They crush any form of dissent. 280 activists, human rights defenders, protesters are imprisoned there on charges relating to the peaceful exercise of their rights to freedom of expression and assembly, uh, according to um, Amnesty International uh, a young man in prison for publishing uh, a video in which a 15 year old boy said police had sexually assaulted him and God forbid the treatment that he would receive in prison uh, and, and there's a long list of problems that Amnesty International, the human rights organisation would cite when it comes to the administration or the governance of Algeria There are very clear rules around how we can or cannot designate a country as a safe country. And I am absolutely confident that the approach that we have taken and the way in which we have designated this country, that it is correct. But I'll again state very clearly, it doesn't stop somebody from coming here and seeking protection. And of the 10 people, say, that come to the experience that we have to date, two will actually still get protection. Others may not. So there are people coming here for economic means who are using the international protection system. And it absolutely has to be the case that those who genuinely need protection, whether they're from Algeria, be it a safe country or not, whether they're from Algeria or any other country, the system has to work efficiently and effectively for them because that is Mm. who it is there for. You you said, Minister, we can't cope. Is Ireland full? I, I haven't said that we can't cope at all. And I don't think Ireland is full. Absolutely not. 
um, if you look at the numbers that we've had uh, on average in the last two years of international protection applicants, it's about 12 or 13,000. Uh, we have a population of 5 million people, so I absolutely do not think that that number mm. uh, is... But you're talking about cracking down on asylum seekers uh, and uh, getting tough on all of this. Uh, it's very disappointing, uh, particularly given the timing of it uh, ahead of uh, the local and European uh, elections. This uh, would uh, seem to be a political stance that you're taking that the far right have won the argument? No, absolutely not. And, I mean, this is not getting tough on people who need our help. I have to stress that again. What I've said very clearly is people who come here for economic means, when we have a very uh, robust, I think, visa system where people apply, they come to work, they come to study, they come to travel, that system is there. That is a legal route for people who want to work and want to come to better themselves in the same way anybody else does. There can't be a situation, and and this is not my language, so if if people want to use the word crackdown or anything else, I am making sure that our system works as efficiently and effectively as possible Mm. for the people who genuinely need it. I absolutely deplore the violence that we have seen Mm. in recent weeks. I do not conscribe to it in any way. It is appalling that a challenging situation, yes. We've gone from about 3,000 people to 12,000. We can manage that, but what I have seen, Mm. and this hasn't just happened... It's just to, to point out, this hasn't just happened in the last few weeks or in the last few months. The fast track system that we applied to safe countries, um, I applied that in November of 2022. So this is over a year since this has been in place. And what we've seen is that for those eight countries, people coming, um, the number of people coming from those countries has dropped because the vast majority of them were coming for economic reasons. That clogs up the system. It takes away beds from people coming from countries mm. where they genuinely need a bed. And if we can do that more, if we can make sure the system is freed up for those who okay. need it, we're able to provide better protection. Right, well, that is the only thing I'm interested in. I do not conscribe in any way to the idea that Ireland is full or that we cannot protect people. We absolutely can and we will. Well, uh, I'm sure you're interested in Fine Gael, uh, being uh, successful in elections and gaining seats. Uh, if this is not political, if the government has not taken a, a different position on immigration because the far-right arguments are gaining tractions. What will happen in the local elections or the European elections if a Fine Gael candidate uses the race card? Well, I, I don't subscribe to that. Uh, and I think the vast majority, if, if not most people in my own party, are open and welcoming and want to provide support. I appreciate that people have questions in communities, they want to know that there are resources and supports available. Will there be uh, any the sanction for a Fine Gael candidate who uses the race card? Well, that's not a decision for me to make, but I have no doubt. Well, what's your opinion on it, Minister? Well, I, I think if somebody were to be racist, if somebody were to be actively pursuing that type of behaviour or encouraging people in that way, then I, I wouldn't support it. And, and that I can't make that decision. That's very okay. much a decision. But- would you prefer would you prefer the councillors in County Mayo um, not to put themselves forward in the next election, given that they have already used the race card? I'm not aware that anybody has used the well, race card. Well, they voted for a motion that uh, will cease all uh, interaction with uh, the Department of Integration. Well, again, I'm not going to comment on a council motion that seemed to have been voted on. Uh, no, I'm asking you to comment on Fine Gael members who will be standing for election. 
again, Michael, that's not a decision that I can take. No, but have you not got an opinion on it? I'm asking you for your opinion, Minister. You you have and you're not letting me answer. I've said very clearly I don't support the idea that anybody would be racist, that anybody would say we're full. I can't interpret the decision that was taken there. I haven't studied it. I don't know what the reason was. Is it that they want us to engage in terms of better services, better communication? They don't want to engage. They don't want to engage any further. I mean, that's that's playing uh, to the gallery of the far right, is it not? Well, I can't be any clearer, Michael. I don't subscribe in any way to any type of behaviour that would be racist or that would not support people who need our support. Okay. So, again, I, I can't say any more than that. That is my own view and that's the approach that I would take and I would expect our own colleagues and my own party members to have the same Okay, uh, the High Court ruled uh, that your failure as, uh, well, Roderick O'Gorman's failure probably, but uh, the government's failure to provide international protection against applicants uh, with material reception conditions is unlawful and um, uh, amounted to a breach of those applicants' right to dignity under the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Uh, There continues to be hundreds, Holly Kearns was speaking there, about 600 people, I think it's about 700 people who were sleeping on the streets of Dublin in sub-zero conditions. Uh, is anything being done about that, Minister? Absolutely. Everything that possibly can be done is being done. Uh, I mean, you'll be aware that Minister O'Gorman's department in two years alone has housed tens of thousands of people, uh, multiples of what we would have ever done in any one given year. And it's no... No, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the people around the streets. Uh, has anything been done for the people on the streets? Absolutely. So any person who comes through um, the international protection system... There is an assessment done to see where people are vulnerable, where we can support them, how we can help them. But, I mean, I I can't get away from the fact that nobody is getting away from the fact that there are some people where we simply cannot provide accommodation. Why not? Why why are we so brutal at this? I mean, we're taking in far fewer people than an awful lot of of European countries. Uh, I think about a million people went to Poland uh, from Ukraine uh, alone. Uh, We've only taken in about 13,000 international applicants in the course of uh, the last year. And as we've been making the point uh, on this programme over again, time over again, uh, 21,000 Irish people left this country to go to Australia in the year of 2023 alone. Why are we not able to provide accommodation for these people? Why are we in breach of our obligations, our international obligations. Well, the people leaving really makes no difference, Michael, because there are more people coming back. But anyway, that's a separate point. If you're going to tell me that we have not done enough or tried hard enough in the last two years, I I simply don't accept that. We have had 103,000 Ukrainians come to this country. I remember your party leader telling us to expect 200. And I also remember hearing uh, around Christmas that you're going to put Ukrainians on the streets in the coming weeks. Well, I'll be very honest. I'm very proud of this country and what we have done and the way in which we have welcomed people. We have welcomed probably a higher proportion of Ukrainians than the vast majority of our European countries, save the countries that are right next to Ukraine. When it comes to our international protection system, we have gone from, on average, about 3,000 people a year to, in a very short space of time, between 12 and 13,000 people. So it is a matter of simply trying to find accommodation and every single ability that we have in trying to do so is being used. We have challenges and the more people that come out and try and burn down accommodation centres and put fear in communities where people have offered up accommodation. and They're winning. They're winning. They're winning. They're winning because you have changed your policies in relation to this. They are winning. They have uh, gained uh, enough 
popularity uh, that there's enough support for their arguments that the government is now running scared going into elections and you have changed your policies in relation to Ukrainians, you've changed your policies in relation to Algerians and people coming from Botswana. Well, I haven't changed any policy, Michael. So the fast processing that we have applied to safe countries has been in place since November of 2022. And again, I'll repeat, the only reason that we have that is to make sure that the system is there for people who need it, that beds are not being taken up by people who do not need protection. And if you're telling me that that's the wrong thing to do, then I think you need to look at how the structure works. If we have people coming for economic reasons that are taking up genuine places for those who are fleeing war, torture, Mm. persecution, then our system does not work. And so in the last two years alone, so never mind what's happened at Christmas, because that, as far as I'm concerned, should not even be we should not even entertain that. So in the last two years alone, I have more than doubled the amount of staff in our International Protection Office. I'll add additional staff again this year as well as the appeals process to make sure that people can get mm. their decision as quickly as possible, that they can move on with their lives when they get protected. OK. All right, Minister, let me remind you of what the High Court said to the Justice. Uh, Justice Mean said, even if accommodation facilities are overloaded, alternative steps should be taken by the Minister, which may include giving financial allowances or referring persons, such as the applicant uh, who was in front of the court, to bodies within the general public assistance system who will provide what the Minister does not. Uh, In other words, the High Court says that there's no excuse for one or two, let alone six or seven hundred people living on the streets who are vulnerable persons who have come here seeking international protection, as is their right. And we don't disagree with that. Minister O'Gorman is doing everything in his power to try and provide accommodation for these people. That's all I can say on that. There's no disagreement here. Well, there is. There is, because the judge also said, clearly giving the applicant a 28 voucher for Dunn's and the addresses of charities doesn't come close to what's required. So there is some uh, gap between what the High Court uh, interprets Ireland's obligations to be and what the government considers them to be. And we fully accept the rulings of the High Court. So I would not disagree with any ruling. I respect the court. And whatever the ruling is, we are trying to comply and we will comply. But everybody is doing everything that they can here, Michael. And you might not believe that and other people might not believe that. But we have an obligation and I take that very seriously. Uh, and you accept, that the, you accept that it's, it's not optional. Uh, that's the point the High Court said. It's not optional. It's obligatory. You cannot have people on the streets. This is not something that uh, you're allowed to do onto your, uh, your uh, international obligations uh, according uh, to the High Court. And you said you've accepted that. But you continue to be in breach. Michael, all we can do is find accommodation for these people. That is everything that we are doing. Minister O'Gorman's department's sole focus in this area is making sure that we can find accommodation for people. But that is not easy at the moment. And again, the devastating scenes we saw over Christmas and after Christmas where we had buildings set alight, that is not helping. And that is why those people need to be held accountable. I have every confidence that the Gardaí will identify those who are responsible and people need to be held accountable and shown that this is not to be tolerated because it is feeding into a wider narrative. I do not subscribe to it. My policies are not changing. Anything that I'm doing for the international protection system is to improve the structures, to have people process more quickly, to make sure that those who need it get it. 
But also, if my systems are improved, it means that there's a quicker turnaround and it frees up beds as well, which in turn obviously supports my colleague, Minister O'Gorman, who's responsible for trying to identify accommodation for tens of thousands of people in such a short space of time. But I can't say any clearer. We are doing everything that we can. I take all of my obligations, the international or rulings from court, very seriously, as do everybody that I work with. Nobody wants to see, particularly with the weather as it is, a person sleeping on the street. And we just have to do everything that we can. And okay. that is exactly what we are doing. All right. Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That is uh, the Minister for Justice and Fine Gael TD for me, the East, Helen McEntee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny has a private member's bill in front of the doll this morning. Under this proposed legislation, somebody in, found to be in possession of cannabis will not be prosecuted. This is up to seven grams of cannabis. A group of senior doctors, including GPs and psychiatrists, have written to ministers, party leaders, health spokespersons and members of uh, the Joint Committee on Health ahead of uh, this debate which is taking place uh, this morning asking them not to proceed as Gino Kenny wishes. Let's speak to Dr Hugh Gallagher who's a GP addiction specialist. A very good morning to you Dr Gallagher and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. What Gino Kenny is proposing in this legislation would seem to be very much in line with uh, the recommendations from uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs Use. Uh, Why are you opposed to it? It isn't actually in line with the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly. What uh, Gino Kenny's bill proposes is the legalisation of cannabis use, and that is not a recommendation that's uh, that's come from the uh, the Citizens' Assembly. Uh, It doesn't doesn't suggest the legalisation of Apply, but it does um, it does propose the legalisation of possession of cannabis use, and we would very strongly uh, oppose. Uh, we would be out right into TDs to oppose this, uh, based on our very strong uh, evidence that uh, that that would be a harmful move. That would be an anti-health move, and we we do this. Uh, and we but are you sure that's what it would do? Because cannabis would continue to be illegal. Possession would not result in a prosecution. Cannabis, uh, cannabis, cannabis, yes, but but the possession of cannabis use. So, so, so somebody could be, you know, you know, sitting outside their their house smoking cannabis, mm. uh, and and that would be deemed to be that would be deemed to be, you know, within, within the law. But uh, but what what the citizen assembly has proposed, or what what the proposed legalisation, uh, it did it did uh, suggest a move towards decriminalisation, which is an entirely different thing. Decriminalisation is similar to, you know, say somebody who gets uh, who, who who who's illegally parked. So bad parking may create may create an offence uh, which will be uh, penalised but will not be criminalised. So that is the route that the Citizens' Assembly has recommended, or the votes uh, suggested, and, and that is the move that we would, we would, we would support. OK, but that, I, I, as I understand it, uh, it, 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 cannabis would remain illegal. So if somebody was standing outside of their house smoking cannabis, 
the guards could come along and uh, take the drugs off them. Uh, but the per- people involved would not be prosecuted. Uh, would you be satisfied if there were to be fined forty euro, like a parking fine? We're we're, we're well. We're not we're not really in in the business of recommending of of suggesting. No, sanctions. but you're inter- you're interpreting the law to because uh, I mean I, I, I'm not sure that your interpretation is right. Uh, you're saying that it's uh, legalizing cannabis. It's not. Cannabis would remain illegal. The person using it uh, would not be subject to prosecution uh, if they're in possession of seven grams or less. That's the bill, as I understand it. Uh, yes, but it would it would legalize the possession. It would legal it would it would no. It doesn't people... legal it doesn't legal the the possession. It just decriminalizes the possession. The guards could no. take the guards could take. If I'm standing outside of my house with a bottle of vodka and the guards come up to me uh, and uh, say you've got a bottle of vodka there, uh, I'd say yeah. What what business is of yours? If I'm standing outside of my house smoking weed and the guards come up to me and they say you have weed, uh, they can take it off me under this bill. They will continue to be able to take it off you. The only difference between the two scenarios is that I won't end up in court charged and prosecuted. I read verbatim uh, the act as proposed by uh, Deputy Kenny. It, uh, it proposes to enable a person who is at least 18 years of age to have possession for the person's personal use of either or both cannabis and cannabis resin. Uh, it shall be lawful for that person to have such possession. That to me is legalisation of possession of cannabis use. Okay, <laughs> that's um, uh, a, a good argument. Uh, I, I hadn't actually had the opportunity to, to read the bill. Uh, but uh, the argument that Gino Kenny has been putting forward in relation to that is that they are adults and that they're going to have their cannabis anyway, but their lives won't be ruined as a result of it. They won't end up with a criminal record and all that goes along with that and uh, that this health-led approach that the Citizens' Assembly is recommending could be implemented uh, where there are people who have uh, problematic usage. Lives aren't currently ruined um, uh, by the laws that exist. In fact, there is a de facto decriminalisation in place in Ireland, in my view, at the minute. I, I've worked for 25 odd years in, in the drug uh, addiction sphere. Um, vast numbers of my patients that I've worked with uh, would have used cannabis. But uh, whereas way back when I did start working in the service back 25 odd years ago, I would have been doing med- medical reports for people who were up in court for possession of cannabis, uh, among other things, um, uh, for to you know support them in terms of their look. They're, they're trying to get their lives back in order. I would probably have done one of such medical reports in the last five years. It, effectively, it is decriminalized in Ireland. But, uh, but I suppose, I mean, the, the, I mean I sh- we share the same views as, as doctors across, across the globe. Uh, the Irish College of General Practitioners, the Irish College of Psychiatrists, the American Medical Association, the Australian Medical Association, the, uh, the representative group representing 27 medical associations across Europe, would support uh, would support our view as well, and they would say that if they would strongly oppose further legalisation across Europe, as a weight of evidence indicates that legalisation adds to health harms across the population. Okay, is cannabis a harmful substance? Is it more harmful than alcohol? Uh, it's uh, it's. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm not in the 
instance of necessarily comparing and contrasting. Cannabis is a harmful substance that has toxic agents within it. But um, and if I could probably just say one one thing that I know it's, it's there's you know there's people talk about its association with psychosis and certainly there isn't a, there is an association with uh, development of psychosis. But if there's any parent out there listening, um, I would be very conscious of uh, I would be suggesting to them that they they talk to their their children about the use of drugs. Uh, they don't give a bad example in terms of their own use mm. of drugs. You'll find that, um, and I suppose what, what really worries me particularly is, is adolescents who use cannabis. Uh, they're, they've still got a developing brain. Our brain is, brain is probably still developing up into our mid-20s. But what you will find is that it has a very demotivating effect. Uh, it, uh, so you may get a fall off in academic and engagement, academic achievement, and engagement with sports. All of these things can can have a very significant, potentially huge impact in terms of their future prospects, career prospects, and, and other social issues that may ensue from that. Mm. So it, it's um, and then you know there's, there's large numbers of people with mental health issues, large numbers of people with med- medical health problems admitted to emergency departments on a daily basis due to cannabis use as well. Cannabis is an addictive substance. A very mm. significant proportion of those who take cannabis get addicted to it. I've looked after vast, large numbers of, of cannabis users who've been addicted in residential treatment down through the years. So, uh, and, and I suppose, I mean, let's yeah. say, I, mean, I don't want to be sharing the roads with cannabis users either. Uh, cannabis is, is, has, a, has a sedating effect. It, has, and it, it lingers in the body for quite some period of time. And it will impact on people's uh, functioning. Uh, and one of those big fears, in my view, would be people driving. And it has been seen that where it's been legalized, that there's an yeah. increase in presentations to emergency departments in the, U- in, in the U.S. and states where that, where that is the case. Okay. Uh, I just I, I have the wording of uh, the bill in front of me. Uh, I, I, from my reading of it, uh, cannabis would remain illegal and Gardaí would obviously... Uh, have uh, the power to confiscate something that uh, is illegal if another person is in possession of it. It says it it would enable a person who was at least 18 to have possession for their personal use. Uh, But uh, it doesn't say that it would be lawful. It would enable them and that uh, the upshot of that is that they wouldn't be prosecuted. It is de facto legalisation in my view, in our view. Okay. Uh, um, So... Uh, you agree, though, that Gardaí would still be able to confiscate the drugs from them? Uh, well, I, I, yes, I, 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 but the, I mean, if it's if people are entitled to have uh, seven grams, and, 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 that, and that and that people's career paths wouldn't be impacted, and that people who make mistakes when they're fifteen wouldn't uh, be prevented from travelling to certain countries in, in the world, uh, and all of the consequences that go with the well, criminal. That's, that's that's the recommendation of the Citizens' Assembly, and it's mm. the direction of movement on the part of government, in my view, anyway. So that is happening anyway. Decriminalisation is not going to be... Uh, so, a, so, so is this not the logical implementation of uh, that policy? But, but it's... No, it's not. It's, 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 it's allowing for people... I mean, you, you, Portugal, I'm sure, you know, Deputy Kenny and others, they often cite the example of Portugal as, as you know, the... 
as as the you know the most progressive as they would suggest. Mm. But in, in, in Portugal, um, cannabis possession is still illegal. So what they do there is so they if somebody has in possession of cannabis, they will take cannabis from them. Uh, they will recommend them to what they call a, a dissuasion commission, and, and so it's in effect it's 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 a service that will assess as to whether they have an alcohol, uh, sorry, a, a cannabis addiction. problem, an addiction mm-hmm. problem or a use disorder problem, and, and seek to get them appropriate treatment for that problem. But um, they, and, but it, and if they don't comply with that, then they may be sanctioned, and be it a fine or be it whatever. Okay. So you know, so, and so what we're what and what what we're progress what 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 we would believe strongly is that this what what Deputy Kennedy is proposing is a regressive uh, move uh, in terms of public health uh, harms, harms social harms. So, okay. yeah, we would strongly oppose those views. Very good. Okay, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Hume. Good to talk yeah. to you, uh, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Dr. Hugh Gallagher, a GP addiction specialist. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Well, thanks to Margaret in touch with us, uh, saying there would be room and roofs to put over people's heads if at the far right didn't burn the buildings down that were intended to, to be used to house people. People need to wake up and take heed of what's going on with uh, the so-called far right who are so far off the mark with their comments they sound more like Putin and Trump who are self-serving narcissists. People need to get their heads out of the internet which spouts lies and vile information and get back into the real world before things get really out of hand. Common sense doesn't exist anymore. The internet has taken over and it seems a lot of people can't function without it or use their own brains to solve problems. Well, you've heard the saying, use it, your brain, or lose it, says Margaret. Thanks very much indeed, Margaret, for that. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people can use their brains and use the internet as a tool to get a lot of good sensible, accurate information. I think you're correct, though, because there's an awful lot of people who are using the internet believing that they're going to legitimate sites, verified information sources, um, regulated news outlets, when all they're looking at really is um, the result of somebody who has a chip on their shoulder and is making things up as they go along and telling people uh, what they don't want to hear. And that's quite often what the approach is. They tell you what you don't want to hear. They tell you that it's happening and that if you don't do something about it soon, well, then all these single men or whatever, are going to rape your daughters. But of course, there's absolutely no truth in it. Uh, and... Uh, I think that's a point, uh, by the way, Margaret, the point you're making that has been reflected in some of the other comments that have come to us uh, this morning, unfortunately. Our telephone number today is 0419832000, as it always is. Our text number is the same as our What's number, uh, WhatsApp number, as it always is, 0861800658. That's 0861800658. And if you do want to comment on the programme today, you're welcome to email michael at lmfm. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you may have heard, schools across the country will be obliged to record all cases 
of bullying. The hope is to shed a light on the extent of bullying and, of course, to act as a way of protecting children when they are at school. Geraldine O'Brien is the president of the Association of Secondary Teachers in Ireland, ASTI, and on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Geraldine, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Will schools be able to cope with this? Um, well, we welcome the initiative. It, it's called um, Kinosis, which means, as you know, means kindness. And it was introduced by the Minister in uh, 2022. And it's an effort to uh, record, as you have said, all incidents of bullying behaviour um, in school. And it's something that will put an extra burden on schools because mm-hmm. um, any initiative, as you know, um, takes um, personnel to, to run it. So it will be an, an additional workload and mm-hmm. we, need, we need to be trained. And the minister has said that she will provide uh, training to schools and in particular school leaders and uh, teachers and uh, introduce them and give them some CPD um, training on uh, how to uh, introduce this measure in all schools to, I suppose, address one and then to prevent bullying as best possible. Because there are all types of bullying now. Mm. Um, well, that's it. There's a very there's a very broad definition of a bullying targeted behaviour online or offline that causes harm, whether it is physical, social, or emotional in nature, such as cyberbullying, racist bullying, gender identity bullying, or sexual harassment. Uh, so that kind of covers the full spectrum, doesn't it? That absolutely covers the full spectrum from start to finish. And, you know, in the past, uh, bullying was either physical or uh, then it had the social and emotional effects. But with cyberbullying, it's pervasive. It's non-stop. It doesn't stop when the child leaves the um, classroom door and the classroom gate and when they go home. Mm. They have it on the phone with social media. So it goes home with them into their little world at home. And it, it's pervasive. And it, it's it's so detrimental to their mental health and their well-being mm. that it is a good initiative by the Minister to um, introduce this to help counteract that. And as you say, it's uh, re- repetitive behaviour and it really is where you know an individual or a group of individuals feel that they have power over another individual. So it's a total imbalance of power. Mm. And the victim really sees they have no, they have nowhere to turn to, and very often they're afraid, and they're afraid to report it to their parents, and they're afraid to um, report it to their teachers. So hopefully, this initiative will encourage them that you know there is one good adult there, there is one good friend who will listen to them, who will support them, and that they don't need to be feeling uncomfortable, in danger, if they do report Do you think children are crueler today than in previous generations? Uh, I know when we grew up, we were told to, to ignore bullying and we were taught sticks and stones might break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And from what I can remember of growing up, it was, a little bit maybe of uh, exclusion where the girls were concerned, but 
for the boys, it was physical. Mm. You know, and as you said there, uh, they may break your bones, but it's the it's the verbal abuse now because maybe we just shrugged it off, or students of our generation shrugged it off. But now um, students are more enlightened. They know when um, they're being bullied. They know when they're being excluded. They know when they're being called a name. And then um, it, just, it doesn't end there, as I said, when they see it then on social media. And if a few friends had a falling out in the past, it was between the few friends, or it certainly was between the class, or at the most, the schools. Mm. Now that's put on social media, it has an audience out. Yeah. Well, who who isn't being bullied in schools these days, I, I think, uh, seems to be a pertinent uh, question, given the results of that jigsaw survey uh, that was done in conjunction uh, with UCD a few years ago. 39% of people said that they were being Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Being bullied in school. And given the devastating impact that it has on some of these kids, it's a real concern, I take it. Oh, it is. And that, that really, that survey um, told a tale. Like um, 39% and how many, you know, that's close to 40, just round up the figures. Mm. And how many did not report it? You know, how many were afraid to report it? Mm. Even if it were not anonymised. They were afraid to report it, and they're afraid of, of of the consequences. Yeah. So that jigsaw that jigsaw survey was very very uh, enlightening, and I think it's as a result of that then that Minister Foley um, has set up this initiative, mm. and uh, there will be roundtable discussions in the future with all the um, web platforms, you know, um, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Um, X now formerly Twitter um, to discuss and to to make them responsible and to realise their responsibility and that if something is reported to them that they will have to take it down immediately. Mm. And is it predominantly online stuff uh, that uh, is causing the problems? Do you think? Well. See, the physical in the class, in the, in the schoolyard, the physical on the bus going home, 
that can be dealt with to a certain extent by um, the teacher on yard duty, um, the bus driver on the bus. But they can't control. So the, the, there's more control over the physical and maybe even the verbal if it's done if it's done publicly in front of teachers uh, or, or parents. But the uh, online abuse very often that goes unmonitored until it's at a serious stage. Mm. So that has a detrimental effect on on um, children's well-being and. Um, good health and mental health and all of that. Yeah, and undoubtedly uh, it, it impacts on all of their future lives, at least in some circumstances, uh, because as we know, it can have a, a negative impact on mental health and that can interfere with concentration and ability to learn. It certainly can. It can impact on, on their concentration. It can impact on their ability to learn. But it can also impact on their ability to form relationships um, with going forward with other, with other adults. And that can have lifelong consequences. Mm. And we see now, looking back, adults in their 40s, 50s, 60s reporting that there was some bullying incident or some traumatic incident that took place in their childhood that is, uh, impinged, has, has impinged on their lives until they were in their 40s and 50s and they could address it and they only address it by seeking counselling. Mm. So it, it, it's very detrimental yeah. to young people's health. to think that that would continue unresolved go in the future. It is unthinkable. Oh, and this is a question of child protection. Uh, and I think everybody would uh, agree that uh, there needs to be an intervention uh, if it's discovered that bullying is taking place and make sure that that child who is being bullied is protected. Uh, but odd as this may sound, I think that personally, uh, I would say there's a- another aspect to this uh, and that there should be an intervention with the bully uh, in terms of child protection uh, because that child's uh, entire life uh, could be impacted because of uh, the way that they're behaving as a child. Uh, Do you see any merit in that argument? Oh, I see a lot of merit merit in that argument. Um, First, that they would recognise their behaviour. And secondly, that it hopefully could be remediated to some form of um, scheme, initiative, counselling, whatever. Because it can't be good for them uh, maybe bullying was just something, you know, they got with the first incident, the second incident, and then they just liked this as a way of exerting their behaviour. Mm. But for them, very often, um, if, if they go out into the adult world, they could be confronted by a group at some later stage, so it could be detrimental to themselves. So I do feel that they, there is merit in having a, a programme to um, help the the perpetrator, if you like, mm. because theirs is a problem as well that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and uh, negative behaviour breeds negative behaviour, doesn't it, and can lead to, to a, a toxic atmosphere. I take it that uh, there are potential benefits for everyone, all of the students, but all of the teachers as well. And I gather that's why you welcome this initiative. Uh, but it, it will... Uh, put a, a lot of extra work on teachers uh, because you're to uh, 
record any incidents of bullying, but then you're also uh, to take stock as you go along and look at the approach that's being taken and to, to try and gauge trends in bullying. bullying. And I, I gather you hope that the resources will be put in place for schools to have the wherewithal to carry out these duties. It's not just the, the reporting, it's, it's the review and the um, initiatives that have been put in place to address it. Are they working? So they have to be reviewed uh, from time to time. So that all takes personnel, that all takes resources. So init- an initiative is brilliant when it's launched and we all welcome it, but there needs to be followed through with the resources to implement the initiative to implement the initiative successfully, not just pay lip service to the initiative, to ensure that it's done properly, to ensure that all the agents of, uh, that will engage with this are, um, are trained and that they can put in place the best plan to address bullying in the school, in the workplace, and that all, everybody buys into it. As you say there, it's an education for, for all, for students, for parents, for teachers so that everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet and that even those who would be inclined towards bullying will recognise that this is not good. This is not good behaviour. I'm sure everybody would agree with that. Thank you, Geraldine. Geraldine O'Brien, President of the Association of Secretary Teachers in Ireland, or ASTI. A couple of comments coming to us about bullying. Somebody in touch saying, Michael, my little 12-year-old was bullied three and a half years, four, I think it was four, three and a half years. A couple of weeks ago, the bully turned around and told him to kill yourself. For real, you see, word, you and I, uh, we'll see you on Monday and continue to call him the C word. Um, our caller says they went to the guards. It was a waste of time. Um, the guards uh, didn't uh, seem interested. They thought the child was messing. But my son is so afraid. Uh, another chance in class uh, posting pictures of my son's father online, but yet nothing done about it. Um, there are kids. Um, the idea of that uh, doesn't wash with our listener. Thank you indeed. Uh, I I think you should probably uh, speak to the principal uh, and uh, if you're not happy then maybe bring it to the Department of Education. Uh, it's a real problem uh, and unfortunately uh, it can be hard to explain the problem uh, to people because uh, it's not always straightforward. It can be a subtle act that has a devastating consequence. Uh, somebody else uh, WhatsApping is saying the way to deal with bullies is to stand up to them no matter what the consequences because a bully is essentially a coward and they'll think twice uh, about hassling you again. Thanks indeed. Uh, old school thinking there, uh, no doubt. Uh, and that's uh, the way, uh, as I said to Geraldine, a lot of us were brought up. I think uh, one of the problems, of course, is that you're not just standing up to the bully. You might be standing up to the rest of the classroom. You may be isolated uh, and everybody else on the other side and all of the kids afraid to stand up for you in case they end up on your side. It really is up to the teachers, the parents uh, and the principals and all of us, uh, particularly all adults, uh, to watch out for this and to intervene where possible. 
Thank you indeed. Our telephone number 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Sinn Féin used its private members' time yesterday evening to call on the government to file a declaration of intention to intervene in the South African case with the International Court of Justice against Israel and the charge of genocide. Ireland welcomes the decision by the International Court of Justice to order provisional measures in the South Africa versus Israel case. The court's order is significant that Israel must ensure that its military does not commit actions prohibited under genocide convention and that takes immediate and effective measures to enable basic services and humanitarian assistance in Gaza. The court's order is legally binding and final and Israel must urgently implement all provisional measures. We've also called for humanitarian access and the protection of civilians uh, since the start of the conflict. Um, I think it is important to point out that the uh, court did not make any findings of genocide against Israel, but did say uh, that South Africa has a uh, a, a relevant case that can be considered. Um, And we are now taking a rigorous legal analysis uh, of this matter. Um, Our understanding from our initial legal advice is that the term joined is not the correct one to use. Uh, We can make an intervention either a Section 62 intervention or a Section 63 inter- intervention. And these are different matters, but we can't actually do so until South Africa has submitted its main Thank case you. memorial. And they've told us they won't be doing that for three to four months. The Sinn Féin motion was tabled uh, by its spokesperson on foreign affairs, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan, Matt Carthy, who joins us once again this morning. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, as always. We were listening to the Taoiseach there speak before the debate on your motion yesterday. Uh, it seems from what Leo Varadkar had to say, your motion was premature. Good morning, Michael, and hello to your listeners. Actually, the Taoiseach is factually in- incorrect It's not true to say that Ireland can only indicate our intention to intervene after South Africa have submitted their substantive case. The court has ruled in the case of Ukraine versus Russia that there is no restriction on the right of intervention at any particular phase of the proceedings. But but having said that, I do welcome what is a distinctive shift in the Irish government's position because people will remember at the outset, and it was first announced that South Africa would take this case, Leo Varadkar um, indicated that Ireland had no intention of joining. Um, And I think there has been movement, but I would contend that that movement is far too slow because what happened last Friday at the ICJ was truly globally historic. The International Court of Justice essentially found that a genocide may or may imminently be committed by Israel against the Palestinian people of Gaza. And that's why the court outlined enforceable provisional measures. And the only way that they can be met is by a full and immediate ceasefire. So therefore, what that means under international law and under the Genocide Convention is that governments, including the Irish government, have been put on notice. They are aware of an imminent threat um, of genocide being committed. And then therefore, there is a very clear and unambiguous and urgent legal obligation for all states to actually identify measures that are available to us to actually try and prevent that genocide from taking place. And I have to say it's deeply regrettable that government have decided to long finger this again. What our motion called for was a declaration of intention to set out very clearly that we intend to support 
South Africa, that would be hugely important and hugely significant internationally because, we go, of course, we would become the first European country mm. to do so. And it is my belief that if Ireland were to make such a declaration, others would be forced to do so from domestic pressure within their own states. But at the moment, too many states are looking over their shoulders um, and that isn't good enough when we are dealing with a situation where the, the highest court in the world has said that there is a plausible case that genocide has taken place. All right. Uh, officials from the Department of Foreign Affairs have met with South African officials and it will be four or five months before South Africa submits its substantial case. Uh, why not take or use that time to analyse uh, what uh, an intervention might mean or, or how Ireland can support the case? Well, in the first instance, Ireland didn't need to wait for South Africa to take this case. Somebody had to show leadership. And what happened was South Africa showed leadership by bringing this case in the, in the first instance. Um, I think it, is, is, it was very appropriate in many ways that it was South Africa, a country that itself had endured you know, the barbarity of apartheid and, uh, and systems based on discrimination. What is happening in, in Gaza has been happening for decades, not at the same scale that we've seen over the past 115 days or so, but what we have been seeing is the systemic and systematic brutalisation of the Palestinian people by a superior military force. International law is in place in order to protect people who are in that situation. Mm. And therefore, every single day, every week, every month that passes means that more and more innocent Palestinians will die. And we know what the end game is for many Israeli leaders because they have been upfront. They want to destroy any prospect whatsoever of a Palestinian state, a state that is defined under international law. That every um, serious world leader acknowledges that the only way to resolve the issues in the Middle East in the long term is through the establishment of a free and sovereign Palestinian state. Yet what Israel is doing is systematically preventing that from being possible. And therefore, every single day, every week, every month that's wasted means that that becomes even less likely to be achieved. And this is but, but is it being is it wasted time? I, I mean, you mentioned uh, the Ukrainian case against Russia. Russia found by the court uh, to be committing genocide. Uh, there were thirty-two interventions in the Ukrainian case that were deemed admissible uh, and as the Tarnisha told you last night not one of those uh, declarations not one of those interventions uh, made a declaration of intervention no, well, they did make a declaration of... In the, um, in, not not in, before uh, Ukraine in, in had filed. No, no and, and, and that and, was... And that's, and, and and that's the, the position was, Ireland is taking now with this case. The difficulty is that the Irish government used different excuses from different cases, but the outcome is the same. So while the Irish government is very strong on rhetoric and words in respect of Palestine, yeah. one of the strongest at the European level, and we acknowledge that, in terms of every single action that is proposed to them there is a, an excuse to delay. So in respect of the ICJ case, you're right that the Irish government um, intervened okay. and that they waited until after, uh, after the um, Ukrainian um, case had been laid before the court. But the difficulty was that in that instance, the Irish government had already put in place 
several levels of sanctions against Russia, had taken diplomatic, had taken economic, had taken trade, had taken financial and political measures against the Russian Federation. In this respect of Israel, the Irish government has said the right things, but it hasn't done any of those actions. And whatever okay. action is proposed by opposition or by um, campaign groups that say Ireland has to take a stand, because what we now have is laid before us is a declaration by the International Court of Justice that there is a plausible case that genocide is taking place. And the Irish government are talking about considering... Well, they are doing, doing more than that, are they not? Uh, you were also told by the Taoiseach last night that the Attorney General is to go to The Hague next month to participate in the proceedings at the International Court uh, of Justice uh, and the legality of Israel's campaign. No, well, the, that ICJ case is actually a pre-standing case in respect of the legality of the occupation of the West Bank um, um, primarily. And yes, we welcome um, the Irish government taking that intervention. But that is not in respect of the current need, absolute need for a ceasefire to take place. Because every day without a ceasefire means that the images we have seen of children being dragged from rubble across the Gaza Strip are going to continue. And the only way that that is going to stop is if international pressure is brought to bear. And we know that the, the um, mechanisms available to us in order to be able to bring that to, uh, um, to a halt are limited. And therefore, our contention is that we use and maximise every one of those, uh, those mechanisms that we have in order to bring it to a point where international pressure is being brought to bear, that Israel is paying a price for their blatant, blatant disregard for international law and their blatant violations of humanitarian Were law. Were you pleased to hear that the Tanishta told the Israeli foreign minister that Israel has committed war crimes? Yes, again, I'm not sure if the language was as forceful as that. I think the words he uses may have committed war crimes. But of course, and I've been on the record several times as saying, I acknowledge that the Irish government's words and rhetoric are stronger than most other European states. Shame on those other European states, I would say, in the the first instance. Mm. But those words and rhetoric have to be followed up with substantive actions. Because at the moment, Israel, we're watching on our TV screens or on our social media feeds every day, Mm. the discriminate bombardment of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, the forced displacement of two million people, the absolute humanitarian and health catastrophe that's unfolding before our eyes. And yet at the same time, Israel enjoys a trading relationship, an economic relationship and a diplomatic relationship with the European Mm. Union that virtually no other states outside of the EU itself enjoy. Are you hoping that Hamas will agree to a truce, a 45-day truce or a six-week truce, which it's reported Israel has already agreed to? I hope, yes, of course, I want the killing, I want the bombing, I want the deaths and destruction to come to an end, but I want to see a sustained peace being put in place. And we know, we know from history that the only way we're going to see a sustained peace is if we actually have international pressure being brought to bear by the overall aggressor. And the overall aggressor in this instance is the Israeli state that is occupying um, and continuing to annex Palestinian land and continuing to operate an apartheid regime Mm. Um, and as long as that um, continues then there is going to be conflict in the Middle East and there is going to be um, another generation of Palestinian children that grow up um, um, that, that grow up feeling hopeless and unfortunately among that cohort there will be some that will become radicalized and that unfortunately is why we have um, Hamas that is why we had the events on October the 7th mm. and it's not to justify those because they were 
deplorable and indefensible, I have to, to, to say. But until world leaders and all world leaders come to a point where they are saying this is not going to be tolerated. We have international law. We have international mm. humanitarian law. We have a UN charter for a reason, and therefore it is imperative that we stand up, even when it is a powerful military sure. might like yep. Israel, in no, no. order to yep. uphold those principles. Just very briefly, one uh, question on a completely separate issue. Uh, when do you believe, or do you believe, for that matter, that Michelle O'Neill will become the first Sinn Féin First Minister in Northern Ireland. I'm, I'm actually beginning to believe, I have to say, Michael, um, and um, I think if it is going to happen, it will happen within the next week. I certainly would like to see it happening by this weekend, certainly by the 8th of February deadline that was put in place by the Secretary of State last week. And you're right, this would be an absolutely historic moment to consider the six-county state, a state that was designed essentially to ensure a perpetual unionist majority. Nobody would have ever envisaged that a Republican woman from Tyrone would become the first minister, that that is within grasp. But I think it sends out the message to Irish people everywhere is that change is possible and that Sinn Féin are at the vanguard of that change. And obviously, um, I hope um, and uh, that Mar- Michelle O'Neill will be for- first minister in the coming days, recognising as I do that there will be huge challenges for the Sinn Féin ministers and for all the executive and assembly members because the North has been um, drastically underfunded and there is serious crises within the health system within the public um, services across across the, the, the board and huge damage has been done over the past two years of a DUP boycott. So this isn't going to be easy this is going to be tough work but Sinn Féin are up for that, we're up for delivering change as you know North and South, that's why we're involved in politics. We want to create a better and a fairer Ireland, but also a united Ireland. And I think this is going to send a very clear signal to the people of Ireland that change is possible. OK, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for you, joining us all, as always. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, Matt Carthy might hope uh, that Michelle O'Neill will be the first Sinn Féin minister in Northern Ireland sometime over the course of this week or as he put it before the 8th of February the deadline for the next elections uh, to be called in the North but it all hinges on the deal which nobody has seen a deal which the DUP says it has struck with the British government but this is not just between the British government and the DUP as I'm sure you very well know because Geoffrey Donaldson has also said that there will be no border in the Irish Sea. How can that possibly be? Well, I'm sure that's a question that's being asked across Europe and many people will be very anxious to see what the British government is suggesting will be the solution to all of this. Karen Coleman is the editor with EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations and joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Karen, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. There has been some discussion has there not with the Irish authorities and with Brussels but uh, is it true to say that uh, we don't know what's in this deal that there will be people in Europe looking to see if it's in line with Brexit and uh, the Windsor Agreement? Yes well I mean everybody will be who's interested in this will be very keenly awaiting the publication of this command paper, as it's called, which uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Eaton-Harris, 
is to deliver before the House of Commons uh, this afternoon. And, and interestingly, Michael, I mean, he has said that on the one hand, the changes are significant, but they haven't affected divergences from EU rules in any shape or form. Um, and yesterday at a press conference in Brussels, uh, a, a commission spokesperson made a very short comment when asked about uh, the, the deal that was struck. And he had said, well, the commission has not been involved at all in these negotiations between the British government and the DUP on their deal. And therefore, you know, they don't know what's in the deal. Um, but I think the general assumption is that it does not in any way affect the Northern Ireland Protocol and the changes that were brought about by the Windsor Framework and that the changes that have been agreed and struck between uh, between Downing Street and essentially the DUP are ones that will purely relate to the movement and trading of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and that they are not going to affect the movement of goods between the EU and Northern Ireland and the single market. Now, obviously, the devil will be in the detail, but if you uh, judge the remarks made yesterday by the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and this morning by Micheál Martin, they don't seem to be expressing major concerns that these are going to be issues that will rattle the cages in terms of deals done over the Northern Ireland Protocol and transfers of goods between Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU and then coming in through the Republic of Ireland. It seems essentially they're about trying to make sure that Northern Ireland isn't going to be treated any differently when it's trading goods between itself and the rest of the UK. Hmm. Is that possible? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> we know <laughs> we know that uh, mm. the Windsor framework brought about green lanes and red lanes. Mm. Um, green lanes being essentially the lanes that were to allow the passage of goods between uh, Great Britain and mm. Northern Ireland. Easily. But listening to uh, Jeffrey Donaldson, you get the impression that all that's out the window, uh, that there won't be these customs checks, uh, that Northern Ireland won't be treated a- any differently, that that will be uh, internal dra- trading within the same jurisdiction. Uh, if um, nothing is changing as such, uh, will he be able to sell it to DUP supporters? Or is there a formula of words uh, which can uh, address both concerns, if you like. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. He has he's promised zero checks, zero customs paperwork on goods me- moving within the UK. Now, from an EU's perspective, they will want to make sure that the British government isn't doing anything that's going to interfere with the protocol and the the EU UK trading uh, trade agreement which was brokered it's an international treaty they've got to accept that so uh, whatever deal sunak has done with jeffrey donaldson um, that can only be done in such a way that's acceptable to the eu in that it's not that he hasn't made promises about changes to rules concerning goods that would then go into the single market um and What will be very interesting will be to see if the British government is somehow has somehow made changes that would mean that the UK government may 
may agree to align more closely to EU rules to ensure then that if goods, we'll say, that were made or produced uh, in, in, the, in Great Britain that were going into Northern Ireland and that might come into the EU single market, they would have to make sure they adhered to the EU single market rules. Um, it's very complicated because mm. any goods that go through the border, um, you know, where there's supposed to be no border between uh, within the single market between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, they have to make sure they adhere to the EU rules. Um, so it could be it's all a fudge. It may be the case that the, that the UK government has done a deal. There'll be no paperwork, according to Donaldson, no checks. But at the same time, that deal can only be done if it doesn't contravene any EU single market rules. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, all of that sounds impossible or, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the consensus has been for the last eight years that it would be impossible to do both at the same time. And it's very difficult to understand how it could suddenly become possible. But it, what's your what, what's your sense? Because we're talking in a complete vacuum here. Uh, what, yeah, well, what's your sense? Do you think that it is possible? Do you think that everybody can be happy at the end of, of the day uh, and that we will uh, see a return to Stormont and uh, that uh, the European Union will be satisfied as well? Well, I think there's one major lesson we've learned from Brexit is that it's impossible to get unanimous happiness over any of these deals. Clearly, there will be still, whether it's a substantial uh, minority or not in Northern Ireland who won't be happy. We know there are, you know, uh, certain groups of the, lo- the loyalist unionist communities who are not happy anyway with any deal that's being done. And they're already saying that this is a fudge. I mean, I think from from reading the smoke signals yesterday from the comments by the commission spokesperson, I mean, what they've been saying is they have not been involved in any way with these negotiations, these negotiations have been between uh, the British government and the DUP. Therefore, the implication or the inference is there was nothing being discussed that would affect the Brexit trade agreement deals, the deals of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the deals of the Windsor Framework. They wouldn't be affected. They couldn't be because the EU have not been involved in those negotiations. So one only one has to assume the negotiations that have been done are purely about goods that would be going backwards and forwards between um, between all the elements of the UK, but between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and that the movement of those goods won't in any way affect EU rules, the EU single market rules, any standards about the production of goods and all the other things like veterinary products and pesticides and all those other things uh, that got people very concerned when when the original Northern Ireland Protocol uh, was being negotiated. So, um, and, and Heaton Harris seems to be implying it's not going to interfere with any EU rules. So perhaps the whole thing is going to be a fudge. But we do know, Michael, and I'm sure your listeners have been talking about it as mm-hmm. well, and you've been talking about it this morning, is a situation in Northern Ireland. They've had, you know, those, those public sector strikes they are not running themselves in terms of a devolved government. I mean, how long more can they continue like that? 
people are very affected by this. If you look at the news last night and box pops that were done in various places, people want a government up and running. They're sick and tired of having the situation where there's no devolved government in Northern Ireland. And public sector workers want pay increases. There's been inflation. They're very unhappy. And at certain at a certain stage, the politicians are going to recognise, and perhaps this is what's happening with Donaldson, you know, it, they, they, they recognise they can't continue to stay out of government. Um, and some possible fudge has been done that they'll claim, as in the DUP and Jeffrey mm-hmm. Donaldson, is a major victory. Sunak and Downing Street and his team will say, well, that's brilliant. We've now got Stormont <laughs> up and running. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's release the 3.3 billion, please, and let's just get on with the job. I don't get a sense that there was any major outcry. In fact, most people, I think, within the EU at this stage think the Brexit deal has been done. Mm. This is a local issue. It, you know, there are far more pressing issues right now to do with Hungary, the rule of law, the Middle East crisis, ongoing problems with, you know, energy supplies and all of that. So there are far more pressing issues right now that are high up on the EU's agenda, uh, not least European elections coming up in June and and what potentially that could lead to in terms of any more extreme elements um, gaining more power within the European political system. So there are far more other pressing issues, I think, many would see within the EU agenda than what's going on. I think they see it as more a local political issue right now. All right, Karen. Thank you indeed, as always. Karen Coleman, editor for EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Michael Reed on LMFM. Why not give up a drink and encourage your friends and your family to join you? This is a suggestion from turntome.ie. Its CEO is Fiona O'Malley, who's on the line. Good morning, Fiona. Are you mad? <laughs> Am I mad? No, not at all. Um, I think it's um, certainly become a trend. It's very popular now for people to give up drink permanently or for prolonged periods and we would encourage anyone who's completed dry January to consider giving up alcohol for the year for the benefit of their physical and their mental health as well. Okay. Uh, Would it not have a a negative impact on people because uh, people use it to relax, they use it to socialise, they'll Mm -hmm. say it's food for the soul uh, and that the fun times that they have while consuming alcohol uh, feeds into their psyche and makes them happier people all around? Well, no, because alcohol is a depressant. Um, and even though alcohol center, certainly is a centre point um, of, of for a lot of cultural uh, meetings and, and events and celebratory moments, that's a societal thing that we have learned. Um, but we can also meet people and unwind without having the alcohol impact. Um, and we can also unwind in things like jogging, hiking, uh, yoga, um, uh, I suppose creative outlets like um, writing groups or, or reading groups or book clubs. Um, and also we would argue that um, 
oftentimes some people, even though they do unwind after a glass of wine, they can also unwind with a bit of yoga, with some tea, meeting friends um, that don't have uh, alcohol as the centre of these these meetings. And also when you do drink um, to, I suppose, loosen up after a problem or loosen um, up after a difficulty, you still have the, the difficulties that you had before having the alcohol. So it hasn't gone away. Um, and the root of the problem or the want to drink is, is still there. But where's the space for fun? <laughs> Lots of space for fun. So I suppose, you know, not drinking now in a night house is, is very, very common, as we can see from all of the alcohol-free alternatives that pretty much every major um, drinking and alcohol brand has has brought out. And also the fact that there are um, at least three non-alcoholic bars across the country, um, which shows the growing trend for, for people to embrace sobriety and embrace um, the sober life. And are they having fun? <laughs> I think I think they are. Yeah, I've been to um, two of them myself, and I thought it was it was great. And and also the the conversation is better, and the the bonds formed are are deeper. And people don't wake up the next day with the fear or a hangover or um, anxiety or depression that is stemmed as a direct result from alcohol. So you can go out and still socialise, but just not wake up with all the the negatives as well. You haven't spent too much. You haven't broken your healthy eating diet. You haven't um, said too much, mm. and you're not conscious about anything anything negative. Would you not lose all of your friends? <laughs> well, that probably is a concern for some people because alcohol is, um, as I say, a centre point of social events and celebratory moments in Ireland. But that is changing. Um, and a lot of people, it's not just athletes now and models and actors that are saying, coming out and saying that they, they live a sober life. Uh, a lot of people, um, you know, say now that they, you know, go out and, and don't drink. It's very normal now to go out and to kind of hear people saying, no, I'm, I'm not drinking. Or, you know, it's not just people who aren't driving. It's people who are training for triathlons or it's people who just simply don't want to wake up the next day and have a hangover. So uh, it's certainly certainly become more normal as of late in, in Irish society. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, so this much. morning. Fiona O'Malley, CEO of Turn To Me. Now, thanks uh, to uh, the caller, listener, texting us this morning, asking about Michelle O'Neill. Matt Carty said uh, she was a, a Tyrone woman. Our listener says, is she not from Derry? Uh, well, actually, uh, it's a, an interesting question uh, because she's a Cork woman. Michelle O'Neill, uh, just according to Wikipedia, if you can trust that, born in Fermoy in County Cork, but comes from uh, Tyrone, uh, from Clonow in County Tyrone, apparently. Uh, hopefully that answers your question. Uh, I found it interesting. Uh, went to check and uh, was uh, surprised. I, uh, as I imagine most people would be to learn that Michelle O'Neill was born in Fermoy. Anyway, that's uh, where we leave you for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.